and welcome to the Paleo Cinema Podcast 253. My name is Terry Frost, and this time I'm not quite going to be talking about movies, I'm going to be talking around movies, because I'm going to tell you about our trip to Japan. We spent two weeks in Japan in April, which is why the podcast wasn't happening, and I kind of want to debrief on that and let you know what to do, what not to do, the things that astounded us, the things that delighted us, and the things that surprised us. Uh, So, yeah, it's going to be kind of... A stream of consciousness podcast this time around hopefully it'll work and i'll get the contact details out of the way and i can start telling you about everything paleo cinema podcast is a podcast of old movie appreciation there's only a couple of rules here the first one is the movie has to be at least 20 years old and it's a rule i break occasionally and the second rule is i have to find some interesting things to say about it uh, feedback's very important to the podcast, so you can offer it a couple of ways. You can offer some at feedbackpaleo at gmail.com. You can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. And also, or you can send me an owl if you went to Hogwarts. You can even support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema and donating as little as $1 US per month. Just be aware with the podcast, I may swear occasionally, so you might not want to let your kids hear it if you don't want them to pick up filthy words with Australian pronunciation. Oh, hi, old peeps. Um, or if it's in the evening, konbanwa, if it's in the morning, konnichiwa. Um, yep, we have been to Japan and back again. We survived the experience. Uh, there were some interesting and slightly um, off-putting things about it, but in general, it was pretty good. Uh, We were pretty challenged by the whole deal of going to Japan. And one of the reasons we were challenged by it is we hadn't travelled overseas in 12 years. And this was the longest that we've ever spent in a non-Anglophone country. Previously, we'd done about three or four days in France and about the same in Dubai. But we'd never travelled to a predominantly non-Anglophone country for 13 days plus which is what we did this time and so that was a a bit of a challenge though google translate is getting scarily good at um, verbal translation so we did avail ourselves of that at one point of crisis during the trip and see that's what we call foreshadowing i'm going to foreshadow that one a little bit i hope you're all okay uh things here are kind of slowly settling back into uh normality and into being in very much a second-rate country and that's one of the profound insights that we got from visiting japan just how backward in so many ways australia is technologically in some ways socially and um also in the way that we address the rest of the world uh it's really a profoundly humbling experience to uh go through that But I think it's a good one. I think that people who don't get the opportunity to have their cultural assumptions challenged are the ones who can drift into some very weird, dark and ugly areas. In other words, anybody who says that their country is the best one in the world and who hasn't seen a whole bunch of other ones is probably guessing or at least trying to gaslight you into believing it. Uh, there, There are pluses and minuses in all countries. Japan had some negatives as well. The fact that they still have one, one yen coins is one of them. And the fact that most of the transactions we did in Japan were done with cash. Um, vending machines were done with cash for the most part, though you can use your um, 
IC card, the rail pass card to buy drinks from vending machines and, and sometimes also buy uh, food in restaurants with them. But for the most part, uh, it's a cash-based economy, so we had to have a lot of yen to play with there. Um, we left at a really odd time of day. It was 12.05 a.m., so it was after midnight when we got on the plane. Got there at 9 a.m. Uh, Tokyo time, which is one hour behind us, so it was 10 a.m. Australian time. Didn't sleep much on the plane, but we did get some food, which was nice. Uh, Japan Airlines is the one to go with. If you get an opportunity to travel to Japan, and I encourage you strongly to try to, Japan Airlines food is great, the service is terrific, and they will give you beer which is uh, another plus. I did have a Kirin beer on the way back, but uh, that wasn't my main tipple in Japan, but I will talk about what my main tipple in Japan was uh, as we get into things. So we had this schedule. Two days in Tokyo, just to kind of orientate ourselves. Then we were going to take the bullet train, the Shinkansen, down to Osaka, be based there for four days, uh, staying at a place called uh, Shinsaibashi East, which is was, and turned out to be a very cool place to stay. From there, we um, went by bullet train to Hiroshima for a day trip because you travel 300 kilometers for a day trip on a train there and back, by the way, as you do, um, because the transport is that fast. It only took us, I think, about an hour, not quite two hours to get from Osaka to Hiroshima and back. We also went to a place out in the countryside about uh, two hours train trip out of Osaka, a place called Uenoshi where they have not only a castle, Ueno Castle, but a ninja museum, the, uh, um, the Ninja Museum of Igario, which was incredibly cool. I'll talk about that too. So we did that. Uh, then we went back to Tokyo for the last six days of the holiday and, and looked around there. Now, there's some things you need to know about Tokyo to start with. First off, we were staying at Higashi Shinjuku, which is near Shinjuku, which is the red light district and the kind of um, nightclub district of Tokyo. Uh, just easy walking distance to Kabukicho and Golden Guy and all of those kind of sleazy but not really uncomfortable places. So the hotel we stayed was nice. The room was incredibly small. There was room for the double bed, a small desk, a TV, um, a little space to put in some luggage, and one of the compact Japanese bathrooms. Uh, before I go any further, I'm going to kind of wrestle the elephant in the toilet. Japanese toilets are next level. There is, you get used to them. I know a lot of people are twitchy about this kind of thing, but Japanese toilets are the best because you sit on the toilet, the seat's automatically warmed. That's great. That's one thing. So, and here's where I get indelicate, so bear with me. You take a dump. You then press a button, and a jet of warm water will wash your ass for you so that wiping is a kind of minor thing, more mopping up than anything else. If, it may sound like it's going to make your sphincter cringe, but once you get used to it, it is the way to do things. It is a good way to drop a deuce. In fact, it's the best way. I've missed it since I came home from Japan. Those toilets were really, really good. They did what they needed to do. They cleaned you off. And, uh, yeah, they. Um, that's an, another thing that made me think I live in a very, very 
underprivileged country because we don't have these kind of toilets as a matter of course. And in fact, one of the things we noticed when we got to Narita Airport, which is the airport about 60k out of Tokyo, is it had enormous signs for the company that makes these toilets. Big advertising signs all over the airport advertising this company that makes toilets that squirt your ass clean. It is a big thing there, and it is to be thought about. I mean, you know, a lot of people are going to go, no, I can never do that. It's horrible. You know, my ass is my own, all that kind of stuff. You're doing it to yourself. It's a clean way to do it. It cleans your ass better than bits of paper. And I liked it. Not in any kind of sexual way, but I just like the cleanliness of it. So that's as far as I'm going to go on Japanese bathrooms. Okay, next thing, Japanese television. We watched a bit of Japanese television when we were in our room because in the evenings we were pretty tired from all of our adventures. And it's inexplicable. It's incomprehensible if you don't understand Japanese. And it's inexplicable. They have children's shows in the morning which have a guy dressed up like a big round thing with yellow tits all over it. Um, in the afternoon, they have shows where they have a panel of people whose job it is to just nod and occasionally ask questions. And there are a wide range of people they get. They get kind of a an, an, uh, slightly older person who's obviously a journalist, well regarded by the channel. They then have somebody who is either transvestite or transitioning to another gender. There are a lot of well, you know, I think they're mostly transvestites. So there are a lot of guys dressed up as women on Japanese daytime television and evening television for that matter. Much, much more than we get in Australia. It's just kind of accepted that that will occur. I'm not sure whether it's done for comic effect or not, but they're very much accepted as part of the ensemble of these shows. So they might, even things like they, they do um, those TV advertorial shows, and they still have a panel with some men, some women, various ages, and somebody in drag. That happens a lot. Um, I'm not sure why, but it just does. So Japanese television is weird like that. They also have some really good educational stuff. They had something about the Japanese space probe that went to an asteroid, and they have some scientists there talking about it and explaining it to the public. And this is on, like, primetime TV. They're interested in science. They're not just interested in being entertained and having their prejudices reinforced. So there was that. Um, they have educational shows for kids, which help them become bilingual with the English, which is kind of cool. So they have that as a part of the daytime television curriculum. One of the other cool things too, and this is something that doesn't happen here in Australia and probably wouldn't happen in America or in England or all these other places. They have like six and seven-year-old kids going to school on the metro by themselves there'll be a couple of kids just hanging out together and going to school on the metro or walking to school they're ferociously independent little nuggets and that's kind of nice um people kind of tend to look out for them a little bit which is fair enough but they don't have helicopter parenting in the same way we do in a lot of other countries and i think that's fine these kids knew where they were going they knew which train to get on which train to get off they could use their Suica or their Pasmo card to swipe in and out of the turnstiles. They knew which platforms to go to, and they just did it like every other commuter among the 15 or 20 million people that do this shit every day in Japan, in Tokyo particularly. So that was kind of cool. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up taking myself to school. 
So I can kind of empathise with it. It was a very nostalgic feeling watching these little kids just wander off. The other thing we did was we were at um, the temples in Asakusa, uh, the Sensoji Temple and all the other temples there, and they had a string of little preschoolers. They had a big, long, fat rope strung between the kids with little side ropes with plastic rings on them. And all the little kids would hold on to one of the plastic rings and walk around with their teacher. They weren't going to school. They were probably going off to uh, an exercise place or something like that. But they were navigating through these immense crowds of people that were at the temples as this little train of children. And another time we were at Maguro. And even little kids, they have these little things kind of like, almost like prams for kids. But you fit four kids in each one of the carriages of the pram. There are about two or three carriages on it. And the teachers will haul them along, kind of like a small train full of little children wearing orange baseball caps. And that was very cool too. Uh, The kids get a lot of air and a lot of exercise as part of their preschooling. And they get taken places by the teachers in these little trains. So that was kind of interesting to see the way the children were respected and looked after as well. Um, they're not just stuck in one place where the, the preschool is and just left to play in a shitty little playground attached to it. They're taken out into the world and they get used to being out in crowds. They get used to um, interacting with other people. So that was kind of cool. Okay, food and drink. Uh, we'll get on to food and drink. The thing I drank every night was they have these tall cans of what they call Suntory Highball, which is whiskey and soda with Suntory whiskey. 9% alcohol. So I'd have one of those in the evening. You could buy them downstairs at the convenience store. Um, Konbini, they call them in Japan. And they were about oh, $3 Australian each for these tall cans of quite strong alcohol and uh, they were nice i mean i'm not into sweet taste these days very much though japan did test me on that and i just go up grab a can of that when we were um, passing in the evening and kind of chill out sipping some quite good whiskey and soda that's the other thing too alcohol in japan is crazily cheap uh, in Australia, uh, buying a, a f- like a 1.25 litre bottle of whiskey is 50 or 60 bucks. In Japan, it's the equivalent of 15 or 20 bucks Australian. And unlike Australia, the alcohol is in the same part of the supermarket as the rest of the stuff you buy that's not in a segregated area. I know America does it in the same part of the supermarket as Australia does, but for us, it was slightly unusual. Uh, did the best supermarket, um, while I'm talking about food and drink, the best supermarket we went to, was a little neighbourhood supermarket in Shinshibashi, Shinsaibashi East, where we were staying in Osaka. And around the corner, there was a place called Super Tomate, which is just a neighbourhood supermarket, not particularly big. But the cool thing is that the ceilings in the upper walls of the supermarket all around are covered in neon, and are flashing neon you know, with fruit and vegetables and fish and, and meat and animals and all sorts of things and little spiralling neons in the ceiling. It was like a cheap 70s disco, but in the best possible way. And uh, we got some really nice food there. You can eat cheaply in Japan if you kind of do things right. You get prepackaged bento boxes and, and meals, and you'd pay like five bucks maybe for rice and some meat or um, fish. A few side dishes, pickled vegetables, a few ve- cooked vegetables and that. 
and just take them home. Nice, good, healthy food. We ate crazily healthily in Japan, much more than we do at home, and really, really cheaply. And even when we went out, we went to a couple of ramen places in Odaiba, which was a place in Tokyo, which is an artificial island built out in Tokyo Bay, and it's got enormous outlet stores. Uh, four great big blocks full of them. It's got a full-size unicorn Gundam as one of the displays outside one of the shopping centres there, which was kind of cool. Like, yeah, 20 metres tall. So we went to the ramen joints there, and they've got different regional variations on ramen dishes. Some places have ramen that is served cold, and you dip it into the broth and then eat it with the vegetables and the meats and the other things you've got in the broth, and other ones where it's all served together hot. So we had two different kinds of ramen, and the tastes were beautifully layered and textured and really intense. We um, You get like half a soft-boiled egg in the ramen. You get some sliced pork. You get some mushrooms and other vegetables in there, and you get some ramen in a really nice, rich broth. And even that was like 15 bucks Australian. And uh, they serve it, they kind of deal with it in a funny way. You go to a vending machine outside the restaurant, Pick what you want, pay for it in with cash from the vending machine, and the vending machine will spit out some tickets for you with everything that you've ordered. You then hand those to the person who's doing the waiting in the restaurant, walk in, find your seat, and they just serve the food that way. So there's none of that splitting the bill crap afterwards. If you've got 15 people ordering things for one table, each person goes up to the vending machine and just gets their tickets and hands the tickets to the people. It saves all that hassle of splitting the bill of who had what in a very fun way. And, you know, they've got pictures on the vending machine so we knew what we were ordering, more or less. There was a time when I got a sweet potato beer and I can't eat sweet potatoes because of a sensitivity I have to them. So Sal had to have the beer, but it didn't actually say, even in Japanese on there, that it was sweet potato beer. It just said it was a regional beer from the area from which the ramen they were serving is is from. Uh, so, yeah, our ramen was great. We Everybody said to us, go to a place called Ichi Ramen, which is the one where everybody goes and apparently it's got the best ramen. One and a half hour queues to get into a ramen restaurant. So we went no and we went elsewhere and found tiny little back corner, back alley ramen joints and, and other places like that, little places to just kind of eat and hang out which were fantastic good food done really well they've been doing it there for decades and decades in the one place and the one family so they knew what they were doing and had a good time with it the other thing we ate which is almost like the kfc of japanese food is cocoa curry and it's a japanese curry joint reasonable food too the one across the road from our hotel also had full runs of um, manga to read while you're eating or while you're waiting for your food. So they had like a full run of one piece manga and a few other, uh, I think they had My Hero Academia as well, in Japanese of course, in a bookshelf near the cash register. So you could just pick it out and read manga if you read Japanese. But the Japanese curry is interesting. You get rice, you get 300 mils of rice on a standard serve. Then you get... um, a choice of curries. There are three different kinds. There's one done with beef hash, which is the one I had, which is really nice, dark, and, and kind of layered with curry and other flavors. And then you get something like a pork cutlet, a breaded pork cutlet, 
in your curry. Um, I got one which had a breaded pork cutlet and some pork sausage in there as well, which was kind of nice. All of this is, again, cheap stuff. It's like 12 or $13 Australian for a main course. And it's great because you can pick how hot your curry is. They have levels from 1 to 10. Now, I was pre-warned by certain people on YouTube that 10 is pyrotechnic curry. So I went level 4, and it was about at my tolerance of curry heat. It was um, you, you could still taste all the flavours, but I didn't want to eat a whole bowl full of anything hotter than that. It um, really was nicely done, and uh, they've got cocoa curry places all over them. We saw three different ones in Shinjuku, and we saw it when we were in various other places around Tokyo, Meguro, um, Odaiba, all sorts of other places have cocoa curry places. And it's good, honest food done well and cheaply. The other place we went to was a, a chain place called Sukia, which does gyudon, which is um, beef cooked in a miso soy mixture and served with rice. Now, because it was seasonal, they also had um, smoked eel as one of the options. So I had that, and that was kind of good. Um, smoked eel, a bit of gyudon, some rice. It was kind of hearty. Decent food, bit of pickles on the side. And I also ordered natto. Now, natto is one of those challenging foods that every culture has. In Australia, it's Vegemite. Um, in England, it's black pudding. In America, it's fast food. Uh, and in Japan, it's natto, which is fermented soybeans, which smell like smelly socks. And the other thing that makes them slightly unpleasant is they're incredibly sticky. So there's, you put, it gets a, a chopstick full of natto and pull it away from the body of natto. And there are going to be all of these really gluey strings of natto fluid that go between you and the bowl. Uh, and they'll stretch up to about half a meter before they break. So I had some natto. It wasn't as bad as people said it was. Um, I could handle the, the kind of slightly gamey smell of it it's a little truffly in some ways so i had some of that with my rice and stuff like that and it really wasn't an issue some people get challenged by natto but i found it an interesting experience apart from the gluey stickiness of the um fluid around these fermented soybeans it wasn't a problem for me uh sal didn't try it because i'm a little braver in some things like this than she is and japanese food is cheap and plentiful if you don't go to top-end restaurants um, we also ate out of uh, the Lawson downstairs from our hotel where you could get decent food. Onigiri was the big discovery for us, which is uh, rice balls covered in natto seaweed sheets. Oh, no, sorry, nori seaweed sheets. And they're great. They cost you like $1.50 Australian each. Um, you unwrap them. They're wrapped in such a way that the um, seaweed sheet is kept away from the rice so it stays crisp. And they have filling in it. You can have... Um, tuna mayonnaise you can have spiced fish you can have all sorts of things and there are also vegetarian options and every super um supermarket chain every kind of um combini chain has its own kinds of that and they're all good so if you just wanted a snack you pop into a lawson or a 7-eleven or a family family mart and grab an onigiri worked for us when we couldn't be stuffed finding a place to have lunch just got a couple of onigiri it saw us through and it was really useful having that so there was that 
um, they're also this thing they have at Lawson in the evenings where they have little kind of um, Dixie cups of prawns and the prawns have been flash fried. They're small prawns, um, flash fried and spiced and you um, take it up to the counter when you're ordering. It costs like $2.50 Australian for these prawns. They'll quickly microwave them and they're crispy and you eat them whole. You don't cut the heads off it. You don't suck the guts out. You don't do any of that. You just eat them like popcorn almost. And they're really tasty and they're a nice evening snack. So I, I must have eaten like three kilos of the bloody things while we were there. Uh, and they were like, yeah, cheap thing, go in there, get um, my Suntory highball and a cup full of um, fried prawns and have them. Sets off the evening nicely. It's like getting a kebab after you've been out on a binge. But uh, yeah, the food was all great. We ate cheaply and spent a lot of the money that we had on other things and that gets me to the next part what did we buy while we were there first thing i bought was a new still and video camera an eos uh canon eos kiss m which is the same as the canon eos m50 uh we went to a place called labby in uh, shinjuku down near shinjuku station which by the way is the busiest train station on planet earth and it's got it's about a kilometer long with all the different platforms it's got it's about six seven hundred meters wide and it's about three layers deep it is enormous three million people go through it every day but before i tell you that i'll play you some japanese music and give us a break from my voice uh maybe playboy playgoer pizzicato five i'll play that and then we'll get back to this Yeah. 
Anyway, I dropped a ton of money on this camera. It was more than I wanted to pay. But the weird thing is the guy who sold it to me didn't speak English and I didn't speak Japanese. So we did it all through, I don't know, pointing and telepathy or something. Um, He gave me a terrific deal. I've checked it out and I would have paid about 400 bucks more in Australia. First thing is I got a discount of 8% because because it was an international sale and I had a passport and I was visiting Japan. No sales tax. So immediately knock 8% off the price. Lovely. And they had a deal on where I got not only the camera, which is a 4K mirrorless video slash still camera. It's a Canon. It's top quality stuff. With a decent kit lens, which allowed me to um, film things close up and also middle distance. But I also got a telephoto lens, a um, 50 to 200 telephoto lens as part of the deal. And, you know, battery and all the rest of the stuff you needed with it. The only problem was that all of the instructions were in Japanese and the warranty is only good for Japan. So I've got to look after this very carefully. Terrific deal. Guy and I had a great time interacting with each other. He took us over to the counter where I had to show my passport and fill out the stuff for the um, tax-free. Had a great time, and we did it all without speaking each other's language, which I loved. It was um, Sally didn't understand what was going on. I, I told her what it was going to cost approximately, and she was fine with that. But she didn't understand how me and this guy were communicating. You know, we were showing each other bits in a book. He showed me the stats for the camera and what was in there in the lens. I knew it was what I wanted. It's lighter than my current camera, which I've given to sell. It's uh, the Nikon D5600 is going to sell. And she's using that for her YouTube channel. And, um, yeah, so we, so we did the deal. And it's a great camera. I really enjoyed using it. Only problem is we get to Hiroshima and somebody in this busy tourist bus we were on, which is the only time we took a tourist bus, knocked the lens cap off the camera. And I had to wait till we got back to Akihabara to find a lens cap. And I got two lens caps. I got a spare one. Cost me about $4 a lens cap, so I was quite happy with that. But um, great camera. Bought that. Um, I bought a lot of kaiju figures at the oddest place too because we went to a place called Big Camera. Did turn up in a few camera stores. You had a Bashi camera we went to. We went to Labby, of course, where I bought the camera. Big camera as well. And when a, a Japanese department store says camera, don't just assume it's only cameras. Because we picked up a whole bunch of toys from my nephew, Billy. Um, we picked up a whole bunch of other stuff in Big Camera, including kaiju figures relatively cheaply. I got like classic... Godzilla, I got that cheaply. I got um, a Rodan. I also got a King Ghidorah. Not anything you've seen in the movies yet, but the figure from the movie that's coming out in a month and a half's time, Godzilla, King of the Monsters. So I got the Ghidorah as it appears in that. I got a classic Mothra and Mothra as it appears in Godzilla, King of the Monsters, coming out soon. So I was quite pleased with that. They're sitting around the man cave at the moment. And by the way, the man cave, I mentioned the man cave cleanup. The man cave cleanup got done. Everything's on shelves in um, industrial shelving I've got around the place or in other shelving I've got around the place. This place is tidy apart from the stuff I brought back from Japan. And it's so much nicer being in this room now that I've done that. 
So I've got some figures. Um, I've got a um, Lumen Vader figure from Urusayatsura. Um, a few other ones. Sally bought me an Astro Boy money box, which is about, I don't know, a foot tall when we were in um, Akihabara. And a whole box bag full of gacha toys. Now, gacha is, you know, capsule toys from vending machines. And they're all over Japan. We saw them in Tokyo. We saw them in Hiroshima. Saw them everywhere. And uh, each one's different. They've got quirky things like they've got a gacha with a whole bunch of different coffee-making machines in them. They've got other ones which have got um, cute girl figures. They've got ones which have got praying animals. They've got um, things from Japanese mythology and all sorts of things like that. They're all about three, 400 yen, so like maybe five bucks Australian at the most. And they're beautifully made. They're small, and so people can have collections of them in fairly small Japanese dwellings. And they're quirky as hell. So we ended up with a bag full of those. I haven't emptied out the bag, my bag yet. Between us, we've got two bags full of these things. We had to pick up two extra suitcases to come home, by the way. And, um, yeah, they're, they're kind of fun and quirky and interesting. And we went to a few different places where you could buy stuff. One of which was Nakano Broadway. Now, here's where the story gets sad. So we're towards the end of the trip, and I'm pretty exhausted. I have, I've been eating very light breakfast, kind of cursory lunches. And so I was getting exhausted by the end of the day. I only realized this dietarily when we got back and we kind of unpacked what happened at Nakano Broadway. Now, Nakano Broadway is this big, long arcade, and at the end of it is a whole bunch of stores, mostly in a store called Mandarake, which has like eight different stores in there, which sell used collectibles. Everything you can imagine at, at all related to Japan. I saw Japanese first edition posters of You Only Live Twice um, and a whole bunch of other stuff like that. It's um, it, it's mind-blowing what was there. We picked up a lot of stuff in there. Went in the evening and bought some things. There were things there for both of us, which is kind of nice because there are times when we went to places where there was a lot of stuff for sale but nothing for me. There was a lot of stuff for me and nothing for sale at other places. So this one, Nakano Broadway and Mandarake in particular, were great. There was stuff we couldn't afford that we would have loved to have had, like the James Bond poster. But it was fun shopping there and picking up the things that we were able to afford and that really did you know, trigger joy in us. In us. We've got bags of stuff. We get in a cab because we can't be stuffed going on the public transport to get back to Higashi Shinjuku. And I realise I don't have my wallet. Somewhere along the way, at Nakano Broadway, either my wallet got lifted or I lost it in some way. So we went back. We looked around the places where we'd sat down just before we got a cab. Nothing there. And found nothing. Uh, there wasn't any cash in it, but there were all my cards there were the SIM cards for our phones for Australia. And I went into a big funk. I would kind of put my hoodie on and sat by a guy making political speeches, oddly enough, in uh, the kind of bus area outside um, Nakano Station. And I wept. I was really um, exhausted physically. Uh, we'd spent, at that stage, about a week and a half in Japan and I got overwhelmed by the novelty of it, and I just had a moment of kind of collapse, in a sense. Um, we 
when I kind of pulled myself together, we um, went to the local Coban, which is a little police station, and with the help of Google Translate, we explained what had happened, and I put in a police report about it. And the guys in the cop shop were really nice. I was a bit wrecked, but we kind of made it work and um, put in a report. Never found the wallet. I've been replacing the cards ever since, but it was really the only crazily bad time um, we had in Japan where it just got, it overwhelmed me, the fact that I'd lost or had my wallet stolen and I really didn't um, cope with it very well. And then that's fine. I mean, yeah, it's, and it was an intense time. It was crazily intense. We just learned so much and saw so much. And we've since made some discoveries about my PTSD. Yes, I'm going to bring in an acronym. And one of the things that we've kind of worked out, and I've talked to a psychologist about this since, and um, talked to Sal about it extensively, is because of my PTSD, I've got an ability to hyper-focus on what I'm doing. I can focus incredibly intently while I'm doing something, which is one of the reasons why the podcasts, I suppose. But what I was trying to do in Japan, which made it into a negative, which is usually a positive trait, be being able to kind of focus, get things done, and it kind of the external world disappears for me. One of the things I was trying to do in Japan was put that hyper-attention on everything I saw and everything I did. So um, there were times when I didn't hear what Sal was saying to me. There were times when I neglected things. I mean, we I lost a bag of um, gacha that we got in Akihabara because I forgot to pick it up when we were moving from when I was moving from one place to another. That's the only other thing that happened that was really bad. But um, because I've got that ability there, I was trying to suck everything in by paying attention with that kind of hyperacuity to everything, and which is one of the reasons why I was so exhausted. It wasn't just physical. It was a mental exhaustion because what I should have done was widen my focus, taken some breathing time and some breathing space, and not focused as tightly on every new thing I saw because people can't live like that. So, um, yeah, it, it's a kind of weird thing. It's, it's I keep coming against these legacies of my past, which sometimes are great. I mean, the ability to hyper-focus on things is not a negative. It's a kind of superhuman ability in a sense. But out of place it becomes a negative thing and I had that and that's one of the issues that I had in Japan the other one was I didn't bring the right shoes and the shoes I wore made my feet sore uh, if I had brought several other pairs that I've got um, it would have been a totally different story but it was just an error of judgment on that but we um, which isn't to say that the trip at all was negative we had a great time we learned a lot we want to go back as soon as possible we just got to pay off a couple of credit cards and we'll be able to build towards going again. And by the way, if, if you want to support that, you can become a Patreon supporter of the podcast because the Patreon money is going towards future travel as well as paying for the podcast hosting, which I'll wear. We're putting that towards doing more and interesting things as far as the YouTube channel is concerned and as far as traveling. So, yeah, if you want to chuck in a couple of bucks, I'll dance on the street corner for you. But, um, yeah, it was really a, a weird thing. Uh, by the way, we did get to see the cherry blossoms, which are the big thing in spring in Japan. We went, we saw them almost by accident. Um, 
I had this thing where I was bringing a surprise on sale. I said, I'm going to take you to a museum that's not a big museum, but it's something that you definitely like and it's weird and wonderful. And we're going to go there. It's in suburban Tokyo. We're going to um, head down there and I'm not going to tell you what it is until you get there. So we went to um, an area called Meguro, which is by the Meguro River. And while we were walking towards this place, this museum, which is about you know, a kilometre and a half from the station, we found the Meguro River, which is lined with cherry blossom trees. Now, it wasn't nighttime. Nighttime, the place is crowded as fuck, full of people taking photos of themselves with the cherry blossoms. But this was in the morning. And there were a few people around. There was a guy in a kayak taking some video of the cherry blossoms. And we hit the cherry blossoms, not when they were blooming, but when they were starting to fall. So there was a snowfall of cherry blossoms into the Meguro River while we were there. And the whole river bank. And a river in Japan, particularly in Tokyo, is a different thing. It's kind of a concrete ditch, in a sense, through which a river flows because they obviously for centuries been built up and they want to flood control and all those other things so over the centuries they become a very different thing from a normal river but there were pathways on each side of the river and cherry blossoms were there and they had uh, lanterns and it was just a beautiful place to be and a beautiful thing to see this kind of rain of cherry blossoms into the river so we did get to see cherry blossoms we saw them in other places too they were blooming um, when we went to the Ninja Museum as well, down uh, further south. So they were in, because we're up in the mountains, they were blooming a little bit later. And so we did that. But, yeah, we got to see cherry blossoms in Meguro, which was great. And then we went to, and I'll get the pen out, because I bought a souvenir pen from this place. The Meguro Parasitological Museum, which is a little medical museum uh, near the university in Meguro, which is dedicated to parasites of humans and animals. So it's two floors. It's not a big museum, and it's got all of these glass jars with parasites in them. Some of them are big. They also have wax models of parasites that are a little small to see. Uh, The museum's been going for like 80 years and is a proper full-on medical museum. And it was fun to go there. Uh, there was university students there as well. It wasn't particularly busy. It's a little bit obscure to find. And we got to see a little bit of kind of suburban Tokyo, as much as Tokyo ever gets to suburbs. And a suburb in Tokyo is kind of like an inner city area in most other cities in that it's built up, crammed close together. Um, and each one's got its own character. Every little area we went to in Tokyo has its own history layered into it. So um, there are shrines hundreds of years old. You'll be walking through an area of kind of little apartment buildings and little shop fronts, and suddenly you come on this shrine of incredible beauty with trees in it, stuck in the middle of everything else. Um, They're all over the place. And they are calming. I mean, even though I did have that kind of hyper-attention on everything, Every time I went into a shrine area, it chilled me the fuck out. And maybe that's what they're for, apart from the kind of spiritual aspects and the, and the belief aspects. They're pressure valves for the city of Tokyo and for the other cities in Japan. And I didn't see one shrine that was less than beautiful. They're beautifully laid out. They've got um, trees and shrubs in them. 
They've got statuary. The um, architecture and the design of them is great. Um, yeah, they were just um, a really different and really wonderful experience to see these little shrines everywhere. And before we end the podcast, I want to kind of I could gush for hours, but I'm not going to about this. I did go to Toho Studios. If you have a look at my YouTube channel, there's the bit I recorded outside Toho Studios. Now, Toho Studios, you know, from the Godzilla movies, they made Seven Samurai out of Toho. They made all the Kurosawa movies, Sanjuro, Yojimbo, Hidden Fortress, Throne of Blood. All of those movies were made from Toho Studios. And we went out there and they got, oh, well, I went out there. Sal was elsewhere. I think she was a little sick that morning. So I went out there myself, which is out in the burbs, about 20K out of central Tokyo. And um, I had to kind of get the train to a station I can't even pronounce the name of and then walked a couple of kilometres. There was a bus on the way back, so that was good. But I walked through these nice little kind of leafy suburbs to Toho Studios. They've got an enormous mural of Seven Samurai on the wall, an enormous mural of Godzilla on another wall, and a human-sized statue of Godzilla in front of the building, which I had my photo taken at, of course, as you do. And you could, there are no tours. There's nothing like that. There's just the studio there itself. Down the back wall, if you look down one of the alleys, down the back wall, they've got another mural of Mothra on the wall, which is kind of cool. I got a photo of that. Um, and just being at Toho Studios was a hell of a blast. And then I went back to um, Kabukicho, and we were wandering around there one evening looking for somewhere to eat that wasn't a tourist trap. We didn't find anywhere. And we saw the Godzilla on top of the Toho Cinemas in Kabukicho, which is like a full-size Godzilla head and claw popping through a building. And once every hour, you hear the roar of Godzilla, its eyes flash, and um, there are lights inside its mouth and a whole bunch of smoke comes out of its mouth. So we filmed that, and that was really cool. That was one of the coolest things ever. Went up to the Toho cinemas, which were kind of fun. The movies they were showing weren't particularly movies that are big here. They were starting to roll into the Detective Pikachu, which is coming out soon. And the other one was a um, Detective Conan movie, which is an anime. Anime movies um, with traditional anime um, do show in cinemas in Japan. They're not just on TV and... Um, download. They're very much a big cinema phenomenon in Japan as well. So I didn't get to see any movies while I was in Japan because if I had gotten to see a Detective Conan movie, it wouldn't have been subtitled in English or even in English. But there was a whole bunch of ads for this particular film showing everywhere. Avengers Endgame. Yep, Avengers Endgame had, was all over the place. Um, there was a big poster of it, about four stories tall, next to the Godzilla. Uh, it was everywhere. Avengers were big there, as they, in fact, have been everywhere in the world. In fact, the next Martian Driving podcast I'm doing, I'm doing a spoilerific Avengers Endgame debrief. So um, I'll be recording that in a couple of days and putting it out. But, um, yeah, Japan. Favourite places? Uh, I loved... Shinsaibashi East, where we stayed at in um, Osaka. It's a suburban neighbourhood that hasn't been gentrified. It's old buildings down by one of the trade canals, which were first built in like 1640. 
Um, and there are actually, the canal nearest our hotel is underneath a freeway. So you can't see the canal from Google Maps. The canal, which is fairly wide and has quaint, beautiful bridges with lovely lighting, is underneath the freeway. And then the canal takes a dogleg right-hand turn and goes down to one of the big areas in Osaka, Dottenbori, which is the big touristy area. Um, it's got the enormous Glicoman sign. It's got a Don Quixote um, department store with a Ferris wheel in it. Lots of good food. The takiyaki, the food. Takiyaki, which is octopus balls, kind of like round dumplings with octopus inside them, is fantastic. And we found this dessert called melon pan which is kind of a cake they bake. It's about the size of both of my fists put together. And it's shaped to be look like a melon, a half a melon. And then they slice it open and inject matcha ice cream into this cake, this big cake. And it's the best. It's not too sweet. You get the strong tea flavor of the matcha. The, um, the cake itself is on point. It's, it's not too sweet again. And you know, I don't like things that are overly sweet. But it's the best. It costs like $5 Australian. And it's a terrific dessert. Really busy around Dottenbori. There are lots of um, theatres. There are uh, covered arcades. There's tons and tons and tons of food there. And um, giant crab um, signs above the crab joints where the crabs move. Um, it's an overwhelming experience and really lovely. And it's all along this big, long canal. We went through a place called America Mirror, which is the hip American-style place in um, near Dottenbori, near Shinsaibashi. And it wasn't for us. It was kind of like for younger hipster people who wanted to buy clothing there. And clothing our size is not something that's easy to acquire in Japan. But we did find one place that was really cool there, which is a coffee place where they roast their own beans and do it to the quality of a decent Australian and particularly Melbourne cafe. And the name of the place is cool. It was Gut Wolf, G-U-T-W-O-L-F. And they had a young guy there. Uh, the architecture, the, well, sorry, the design of the place was great with quirky stuff. They had a giant set of antlers, um, chandelier above the bar. Uh, and the coffee was fantastic. It was the best coffee I had in Japan. Most of the time in Japan, I lived on either cold brew or cans of hot coffee from vending machines. And you can get tons of stuff in vending machines. And they're ubiquitous. There are about 3 million of them in the country. So I was living on that kind of coffee. And then suddenly I get a decent espresso. And it was like, yes, this is what I needed. So I had a couple of those. Um, we wandered around. We even found an Australian cafe down by the river, just on the edge of Dottenbori, which wasn't open at the time, where they were selling meat pies and all sorts of other quaint bits of food like that and made it slightly nostalgic for home so around there and also the super tomato um neon supermarket where we went to and we went several times there was one of my favorite spots i, I really like a sucker if we go back to japan i want to spend more time around that part of the world the other thing was when we went to Yunioshi and to the ninja museum now to get there from osaka you've got to grab a train get to another train where you get an express train to a little town, which is beautiful. I took some photography there. It's a little, tiny little town. And to get there, you've got to go into the hills, into the mountains. So you've got bamboo forests and um, pine forests. 
and little flat areas in between these very, very sharp, tall hills. And you get to this town, and then you change trains, and this little two-carriage train, which must be like 60 years old, trundles down towards you, and it's painted to look like a ninja, with like a ninja's face on the front of the train. We got the pink ninja train. And that then takes you about another 20 kilometers to Uniyoshi, which is the town which has Yuano Castle at it. It was the town in which the famous haiku poet Basho was born, who gets referenced in You Only Live Twice by Ian Fleming. And they have a Basho museum up next to the um, castle. And they have a great big shrine to Basho, which is only open once a year so people can see the statue of him in the castle, in the, in the shrine. And they have a ninja museum. And the ninja museum is dead cheap. And they give you a little tour in Japanese of a ninja's house. And they've got things like hidden weapons caches and hidden spots so people can peer at you from invisibly from within the room. They have little sliding walls where there are hiding spots where people can hide and ambush you. There are escape doors which you open by unlocking them with a fake wooden leaf. There's a leaf on the ground, there are a few leaves on the ground, one of them is fake, and you use it to unlock the door. There were hidden places in the floors where weapons could be cached, hidden places in the door frames and the sliding panel frames. It was fucking terrific. And this cheerful ninja showed us all that. <clears throat> and so we go down the back, and then they've got a ninja show where they show you the use of ninja weapons. And they have three ninjas, one of whom is a woman who's quite cute, but deadly. And they do things like they throw ninja star shuriken. They show you other ninja weapons, including the scythe with the chain and the ball weight on the end of it. And that's where we found out that one of the ubiquitous things in humor is someone getting hit in the nuts by any object is always funny in any culture. So they did a, it cost like four bucks for the ninja show. Not they're not trying to make a fortune out of this place, and so we got like a half an hour, forty-five minute ninja show, and they did things like the guy threw um, things like crossbow bolts, which you throw rather than launch out of crossbows, heavy steel bolts. He threw them fifteen meters across a room and hit a target with them. They did a bit of ninja archery stuff. They did exploding arrows into a target, which was really fucking cool. It was just a lot of fun. And then they said for 300 yen, for like four bucks Australian, we'll let you throw seven shuriken into a target, seven proper ninja shuriken into a target. And I did. I hit it like five times out of seven, so that wasn't too bad. But I got to throw ninja stars in a ninja museum, which was fantastic. Great show, really friendly staff. Little bit of English, not very much, but we kind of loved it and had fun. And then we went down the back and they had a little um, museum where they had a whole bunch of historical ninja things. You learned different ways ninjas disguise themselves as other people in medieval Japan, some of the weapons they used, and they're quite advanced. Technologically, they're not high-tech, but the beautiful applications of the technology that was available at the time, things like climbing claws and um, great big... Um, shoes for walking across swamps, all sorts of cool stuff like that. So we saw a lot of that. 
and then they had a little um, souvenir shop right down the back. If you go there, go to the one right down the back. And they were reasonably priced souvenirs. They were quite fun. There was some cute stuff. There was also some cool stuff. I got like a rubber ninja star, which I've still got here somewhere in the man cave. And then you go up the front and there's another souvenir shop where they sell more kind of touristy souvenirs and, and things that aren't quite authentic. Didn't buy anything from there, but the ladies were nice and they had a lot of cakes for sale, which is always a temptation. But we didn't buy anything from, from there. And the park and the garden in which the castle, the Basho Museum, the Basho Shrine and the Ninja Museum are is beautiful, beautiful old trees, older than white settlement of Australia there and moss-covered boulders. Um, it was really a different environment and it kind of was the right thing to do that day because we'd been in cities and intensely populated cities for a very long time. And just going out in the countryside and seeing a little town and going on this quaint little train between rice paddies out to a ninja museum in a little ninja train. It was just the best thing ever. And it wasn't the expensive side of the trip. It was the cheap stuff. Um, It didn't cost us much to go into the museum. It didn't cost us much to go into the ninja show. We then went into the town and looked around a bit and it was like a little rural town. And went into a shop that sold kimonos. And women could get dressed up for formal occasions in kimonos. And a very old um, lady in a kimono came up to us and sold us these umbrellas because we needed to buy umbrellas. The weather was a little uncertain at times. And they had umbrellas with samurai sword handles, which were fairly cheap. So we bought one of those each from this very nice, dignified lady um, in a kimono. And uh, it was just... You know, it took most of the, it took us like two hours to get there, two hours to get back. But it was lovely and calm and peaceful and bucolic and serene and rural and a lot of fun. So I really enjoyed that. Hiroshima was a very sobering thing. I was going to do a video about atomic war movies while sitting next to the dome of the one surviving building in that part of Hiroshima. I was in a place, I actually recorded some of the video. I was sitting there with the camera recording video at a place 100 metres from which a nuclear weapon had gone off within human memory and 80,000 people had died instantly. And I started recording and I started talking about nuclear weapons movies and I pointed the camera up to where the nuclear blast had been and it didn't feel right. I didn't want to do it there. It's an incredible place to visit. It is a mind-boggling place to visit. It's one of the most beautiful parks I've ever been to in my life, right at ground zero of the first use of nuclear weapons in warfare in human history. And they turned it into an enormous peace park. There's an eternal flame there. There's a little uh, river going through the center of it. There are paper crane shrines. There are. There's no commercialism at all in the park they don't even have pokestops for pokemon go within that park everybody respects it and the whole city of hiroshima invented itself as a peace city and a city of art and culture it's got more than its share of museums and art galleries and places of beauty it really does it turned itself away from war and from hatred and from ugliness And it's reinvented itself as a place of incredible beauty. 
and going there was an honour. Um, we kind of went through an arcade and we found some nice um, Japanese chigami paper shops and we bought some gacha in the gacha machines there and um, then we kind of tried to find our way back to the train station because we had our Shinkans and bullet train tickets booked for a certain hour and uh, the subway system in Hiroshima is a little more opaque than it is in some other cities. So we ended up getting a taxi and the taxi driver was really nice. And then we got to the station a bit early and I bought a baseball cap for their baseball team because I don't like sport at all. But I decided that the Hiroshima Toyo Carp team, which are the Carps, would be my baseball team in Japan. I've got a baseball cap now that says Hiroshima Toyo Carp on the front of it. We went into the shop to buy that and they, we found out that they've got a Hiroshima Toyo Carp song and all sorts of other things. Sal bought me a, a Carp towel from them. Uh, we found a couple of bookshops which had some nice stationery in it. And Hiroshima was a really lovely place to be. And it's a kind of lesson to the world that you don't have to be your history. If something happens that's bad to you, it's a metaphor for human life in a sense. Traumas can happen to anybody. It's what you do afterwards that matters. And Hiroshima has reinvented itself over the last 70-odd years into something extraordinary. It's a place you want to visit for all the right reasons. And the fact that they've actually turned themselves into a place of culture and a place of quiet contemplation is amazing. It really uh, a lot of people visit there. Uh, the tourist bus we took to the shrine was full of annoying people, so we didn't do that ever again on the trip. We tended to avoid crowds where we could. But Hiroshima was uh, one of my favourite spots. The other one uh, at, was the Sensojin Temple in Asakusa. Now, um, I did the, all the things you do at temples. I kind of washed my hands and rinsed my mouth out at the fountains, which have got these beautiful little spigots with dragons on them. We lit some incense. We bought some good luck Buddhist charms for the family. I lit a candle for my mum's memory in the Sensoji Temple. Not because I believe anything supernatural, but because she would have liked it and it was a kind of respect thing for me. And then they have a whole row of shops, a street of shops leading to the temple. And we did it in reverse. We came in from the backside uh, and through the other temples, which have got beautiful little gardens and koi fish ponds and things like that. And we went through the shops on the way out. And they had the best food, oh, the desserts there. They had little mochi balls, which are kind of like rice, but pounded so it gets the consistency of uh, a thick jelly. They had that with matcha in the middle and an enormous, incredibly sweet, juicy and flavorful strawberry on top. It blew the top of our heads off as far as food is concerned. Then we had that other thing that they have in Japan, which showed up in a Toxic Avenger movie, which is little pancakes that they um, make shaped like fish with um, kind of filling. And I got the matcha one of those, and they were great too. Then we went to um, a great place called Kapabashi, which is themed around the Kappas, which are river spirits in Japan, which have hollow heads. And they can be, if you're nasty to them, they're nasty to you. If they're nice to them, they're nice to you. 
And Kapabashi is a place where you get every kind of kitchen implement. They have knife stores, they have cup stores, they have plate stores, all sorts of things like that. So we went through there a little bit. And, um, yeah, it, it was a really kind of nice place to be. And these enormous temples really do kind of center you from the marvelously busy and crazy, but incredibly well-organized. So what are my takeaways from that? Um, I think that in some ways, I mean, Japan is very much an insular culture. They're only now allowing people to become Japanese citizens and to buy property in Japan, so they've got that as as a potential negative. But people get a job for life with the companies they work for or for the businesses or for the government instrumentalities they work for. And so there's a sense of permanence about what people do. They're very good at their jobs. They're very delicate, dedicated to their jobs and very invested in them. The place runs incredibly well for the amount of people that are there. And people have a mutual respect, at least in the public space, for each other. Everybody we met was polite and courteous, and that brought out the best in us as well. Um, it, the only people that pissed us off were tourists. And in Australia, we don't have that certainty of employment and I think that maybe that's an incredible negative thing. I think having the idea that if you do your job well, your job will continue is an important thing. And it allows people to do things like build a future, to buy homes, to invest in the future of the business they work for or the government instrumentality they work for, the cab company they work for. Cab drivers were crazy, fantastic people in Tokyo. People invest more in what they're doing. There's not that kind of economic rationalist, neoliberalist bullshit in Japan anywhere near as much as there is in Australia. Yes, there were homeless people. When we went down Piss Alley, Moida um, Yokocho, which is a little place of tiny little izakaya bars, there were some homeless people around that part of Shinjuku. But they were well-fed and well-rested and, and didn't look like they were undergoing anywhere near the trauma and hardship we see in say Melbourne when you go through the city you'll see a lot of homeless people in a lot worse condition than the homeless people we saw in Japan um, the the fact that it has such a deep history Australia has a deep history as well but we've ignored it for 220 years but in Japan history is everywhere even in the places that have been renovated to hell there's a sense of that the history is still there. And I really like that. I like the fact that there's a kind of respect for the past as well as much, much more than Australia has, looking to the future. They're looking to build the next things. They're looking to the Rugby World Cup in December. They're looking to the Olympics next year. They're looking past that. They're putting probes on asteroids from this crazy set of shaky islands off the coast of Asia. They really do um, punch well above their weight as far as culture and science and forward thinking is concerned. It really is an amazing place to visit, and I felt so honoured to be able to do that when so many other people can't. And, yeah, I had to stretch some boundaries as far as our finances are concerned to do it, but going there was something that really changed both Sal and I in a lot of positive ways. Um, yeah, I think I'll leave it there. But Japan blew my mind, and I loved it. So anyway, I'll be back soon with a movie one. 
movie podcast. I'll do a couple of movies and uh, get back on track with that stuff, but I just thought I'd debrief on this. So take care of yourselves. Watch good movies. Watch bad movies. Travel if you possibly can. And I'll be back soon. And of course, we've got to honour the Patreon supporters who support the podcast. Uh, you can go to patreon.com slash paleocinema and do that if you so choose. Thanks to Big Matt for increasing his donation. And I know your circumstances aren't the wealthiest in the world, but I appreciate that, Matt. And um, thank you, Richard, for tolerating the fact that I didn't talk about movies this time. Anyway, I'll catch up with you guys later and take care. And here are the credits to honour the Patreon supporters of this podcast. I'll catch you soon. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema Podcast and Martian Driving Podcast. Done in the style of movie credits to honour the people who support this podcast. Thank you to Tom, the focus puller, Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, the technicolor consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary, the prop master, Morris, the musical director, Jan, the dialect coach, Arm and our key grip, Matt, the rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, our wardrobe mistress, Tansy, our foley artist, Alyssa, our location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, the donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, uh, Steve Sullivan, our director of monster effects, Dylan, our goat wrangler, Eric, our set security lead, Richard H, our set photographer, Mark D, our extra, and David L, our extra, Kerry H, who is the accountant, and our newest supporter, Gary J, who is a CG effects technician. So thank you very much to all of the supporters of the podcast. I really appreciate you dipping into your purses and helping out with the podcast. <laughs>